You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital. This budget thing is going to do nothing. Space Force, I still think it's interesting. President Trump not playing his cards yet. Headlines, policy, and politics colliding. Bloomberg, sound on. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. I would rather see a congressional solution. It's part of my DNA. The Senate map in 2020 looks a lot different than it looked in 2018. You really have a divide within Team Trump. The president has to do exactly what people sent him here to do, which is to get it done. This is Bloomberg, sound on. With Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. New emails show that the Office of Management Budget withheld $400 million worth of military aid to Ukraine. 90 minutes, TikTok, 90 minutes after that July phone call between President Trump and President Zelensky. Will it impact the impeachment and Boeing, Boeing gone? Dennis Mullenberg out as Boeing CEO. The top CEO was ousted earlier today and replaced by David Calhoun. What does it mean for Boeing and what does it mean for the FAA? We will bring you all of the latest. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. We're going to talk about all of the North Korea developments. Have you been following this? John Bolton speaking out to Axios. And Kim Jong-un saying that he's got some type of holiday gift for America. No clue whether it's a good gift or a bad gift, but with Kim Jong-un, I'm assuming it's a bad gift. We're going to talk foreign policy coming up, but first let's begin with impeachment. Adam Green is here. He, of course, is the co-founder of the Progressive Change Campaign Committee and a Warren World Insider. And Bernie Sanders. I'm going to start saying both now, Adam, because Bernie... Bernie has ascended rapid. Uh, well, really, hasn't he? Hasn't gone anywhere. He's still number two in the polls. I'm gonna, I'm gonna grill you on 2020 as well. And John Sidalides, John Sidalides. I like that last name, John. It's a beautiful Greek name. Your Thank first you, time on the program. Yes, sir. All right. Thanks so much for being here. <laughs> Hopefully, you'll enjoy your time. Geopolitical strategist at Trilogy Advisors and diplomacy coordinator under contract to the State Department. What do you do there? Well, we manage professional development of senior diplomats who are being stationed in Turkey, Greece, and Cyprus. So we ensure that they're in a position to be able to best defend and advance American national interests in that part of the world. 
We work with countries along the periphery in the Black Sea region, the Balkans, the Middle East, and Northern Africa. And we also prepare ambassadors with briefing books for their Senate confirmation hearings. In that particular region or in all regions? Southern Europe. Southern Europe. Mm -hmm. Well, it's been a busy region, to say the least, John. It's going to get a lot busier in 2020, Kevin. Oh, buckle up. All right. Mm -hmm. Well, did you see this? These emails, Adam, they came out. They were made public within the last day or so. And 90 minutes, 90 minutes was what it took for officials at the Office of Management and Budget to freeze $400 million worth of military aid to the Ukraine. The aid, mind you, was ultimately released. But 90 minutes after that July 2018 phone call in question between President Trump and Ukraine President Zelensky. And, well, President Trump... uh, saying that this isn't going to change the trajectory of this. We actually have a soundbite from Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer. And Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer says that this is going to be a bombshell. Take a listen to the top Democrat in the Senate. Michael Duffy, a top Trump administration official, sent an email ordering the military assistance to Ukraine be withheld. 91 minutes after... I mean, I go on a run in 91 minutes, but go ahead, Adam. Does that change the dynamics of impeachment? It does a little bit. I mean, this is one more validation for the idea that Trump is one of the most corrupt presidents in history. And anybody who considers himself an American, a patriot, or a lover of the Constitution should want this impeachment trial to go forward with dignity and respect towards the Constitution. What does this further validate? The idea that we're hearing from Democrats in the House that not all facts are on the table yet. Right? You can have sufficient proof to pass impeachment while also having more facts come out and more facts come out. And that's why, in addition to these things coming out, uh, having Mick Mulvaney and John Bolton and others who were in the room or on the phone testify makes complete logical sense at this point in time. It's never going to – I mean, I don't think the dynamics have changed in the sense that Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, he's not blinking about this. President Trump, for his part, down in Mar-a-Lago. Nice club, got to be honest. He's saying that he, – I mean, he met with Rudy Giuliani, his personal attorney – in uh, just the other day down at Mar-a-Lago. Take a listen to what President Trump uh, had to say about Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. Here's the President of the United States. Now she says, you know, she has no case. She has no case. So let's not submit it. That's good, right? That's good. But you know what? So unfair. It's so unfair. She has no case. Trump speaking over the weekend in Palm Beach. Do we know anything John, about the timetable yet, have there been any updates? I I haven't heard any in terms of when this trial is finally going to get started in the Senate. If a trial is going to be started in the Senate. I don't think we have any update today, and we may not have any clarity until after the new year. There are several options here. I mean, and it also depends on what constitutional lawyers are debating. I don't think there's any clear pathway forward. All we know is that the House impeaches and the Senate conducts the trial. Now, how the rules are set up for those particular processes depend on who's leading each body at that time. So there was one system that was set up for the Clinton impeachment in 1998, and there'll be one now. Uh, Nancy Pelosi set the rules for the House impeachment, and Mitch McConnell, after negotiations with Chuck Schumer, the minority leader, will set up the rules system for the Senate. But the question is, does Mitch McConnell have to wait for the actual delivery of the papers? Does he? I don't know. And I'm not sure that there's a definitive opinion on this, but I think he'll make I a decision this ultimately. fascinating. I mean, think about it. This is what, the third impeachment process that we've gone through, mm-hmm. fourth, if you consider Nixon. And we don't even know if after an impeachment, they got to send the files over, the documents over. I mean, it's all, you can't make it up. 
And now we, we could, we, I'm not, I don't mean to laugh, we could truthfully, Adam Green, have a trial without Speaker Pelosi handing over the goods. It's possible. Look, I, I would grant the point that there are— What a there, mess! There's not one right way and one wrong way of doing this, right? It's a little bit amorphous. I but, would, I would but, hope that there in our Constitution is only one way, one process to go through, but I, I get your point. Go ahead. Right, but I, I do think, I mean, per that point, that there are just some first principles, some basic logic that could be applied here. Right. I don't think when, when you hear Mitch McConnell and others say this is a political process, it's very important to point out it's not about Mitch McConnell and it's not about Democratic political leaders. It's not about Speaker it, Pelosi. It's, it's about the American people. Right. And I think a first principle that I would put on the table is, look, should we be covering stuff up from the American people or should in this constitutionally uh, accounted for process of impeachment, should we have a fair trial and transparency for the American people? And when it comes to what the Trump administration has done to proactively block those with firsthand knowledge from testifying and obstruct this investigation, I think everybody should be like, that's not okay. John, I've got my calendar marked. And, 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 and look, we've got the Iowa caucuses coming up. We've got you know, New Hampshire, South Carolina. We'll talk 2020. But February 4th is marked in my Apple calendar. February 4th is the State of the Union address. It's going to be right after right after the Iowa caucuses and I believe right after the primary of New Hampshire, right? No, right before, Iowa's right before. First. Right. right before. So you've got Iowa, then the State of the Union address, the next and day. a Senate impeachment trial happening in real time. I would assume by then is going on. Whoa. That, that, that address that President Trump gives, I know we're way out from it, but you, you hear these emails, you hear this trial and the drumbeat that's starting. That week in America politics is going to be as dizzying as last week. The weeks ahead will be dizzying, Kevin. <laughs> I mean, to Adam's point about the fairness of what has taken place in the House so far, the Republicans will argue that it was a very unfair process. Uh, they were not able to bring their own witnesses into the hearings. They were unable to access Adam Schiff's uh, goings-on in the basement of the House as they were preparing for the hearings in the Intelligence Committee. And uh, they just feel that it was a process that shut them out and was completely run by the Democrats, by Speaker Pelosi, by Chairman Schiff, and then Chairman Nadler. So if there's a fairness issue, I think there's a very healthy debate as to what took place following two and a half years of what turns out to have been a complete hoax under the Robert Mueller investigation. So there was no, nothing to do with Russia at all. Russia had no involvement at all in the election of President Trump. What? No one was able to Fact find checked. any That's evidence wrong. whatsoever. Fact check. And well, so we've had Mueller two and a half years of impeachment talk there, then a rushed process because the Ukraine call was apparently such an urgent threat to national security, they had to rush it through. And then when they're done, Nancy Pelosi says, okay, let's go on holiday for so a few So that weeks. last minute brought to, you, brought to you by oh. Breitbart Radio. Oh, oh that was not, well, that's, that, not, that's not that, fair. No, wait, wait. Gentlemen, listen, I got I gotta I gotta take the mic back for a second. Listen, I'm on the Acela back to Delco right after the program, getting ready for a very Sorali Christmas. Let me tell you, this is good prep work because where I'm from, you can't get a word with get a word in edgewise and everyone's got a different political opinion. I take it you disagree. I gave you the opening word. I'm gonna give him that segment. Coming up, we'll have more time to talk. Coming up, we'll talk 2020, but we're going to leave it there for now. Adam Green, co-founder of the Progressive Change Campaign Committee, and John Sitalides, geopolitical strategist at Trilogy Advisors, diplomacy coordinator under contract to the State Department. Download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find us on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. I'm Kevin Cirilli, hoping everybody is having a safe 
holiday season and wherever you are commuting to that you are keeping your eyes on the road. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Oh, I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television, Bloomberg Radio. I was just telling our guests, Adam Green and John Sidalides, that this is like the first year in several years that I am not doing seven fishes. And then John looks at me and goes, what's seven fishes? Seven fishes for an Italian is like, you know, I, I, I don't even know how to explain it. Yeah, Christmas Eve, you have you have seven fish, seven fishes. Seven and, fish concerts in a row. Yeah. Very, very hippie of you. <laughs> Jake Sherman's mad. Uh, no, it's, uh, I don't even know how to explain it. You, it like, you have a, a different dish and it's made with different fish. And then everyone would go to Midnight Mass. How am I the only, you've never heard of this? I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'll, I'll, I'll give you Swedish fish. How about seven tofus? <laughs> seven, no, six, and then, and then like the Swedish fish. Interesting. All right. Well, that was one of my uh, traditions that we used to do with our neighbors, but we're not doing it this year. Anyway, uh, my the Christmas blow-ups at my parents' house are up. Do you guys do the blow-ups? No? John? I'm do you sorry. know what I'm talking about? Do you guys do like the we'll obnoxious? We'll be at church at 7 p.m. tomorrow. God bless. It's, it's you know? all religious. Well, happy Hanukkah, happy Kwanzaa, <laughs> happy holidays. Whatever you celebrate, I hope that you have a merry, merry holiday season. And what do we want to talk about? 2020? Let's talk 2020, Adam. Let's do it. I think, I think Bernie Sanders is, is the dark horse in this race. I, I, I truthfully I, – I was in L.A. And for the debate, and I, I, was, I thought this, this is consistency from Bernie Sanders. He's polling above 20 percent nationally. What's, take us inside of, that, of their campaign strategy. What's Weaver telling everybody over there? Does he have to win Iowa? Does he have to win New Hampshire? What's the play here? I know you're for Warren. Yes. As you know, the Progressive right. Change Campaign Committee was the first national group to endorse Warren. Yes. I don't claim to have insight into Jeff Weaver's brain. But <laughs> um, I do have insight into you know something fairly obvious, which is that Bernie entered this primary with a fairly high floor. Right? His his base of support will always be 15, 17-ish percent. Now it's like 21. That, now it's 21. Shows that he's been getting some support. So good for him. And I think between him and Elizabeth Warren, they're proving that there is you know a large constituency for bold progressive Ideas. I actually would argue that there's a larger progressive constituency. There's a lot of scared progressive, what I call electability voters, who in their heart want a progressive president, want bold transformational change, but as a threshold issue want to win and are just nervous. And some of those people have been temporarily parked with Biden, with Kamala, with Pete, and we'll see where they land. But I think that you know, no matter what, Bernie will do quite well. I think what we've seen with Elizabeth Warren over time is that her core message of being against systemic corruption, which unites Republican and Democratic voters, uh, being for re- reorienting the government to be on the regular people's side as opposed right. to big corporations is a pretty popular message. But she's going after Pete. She's going after Buttigieg. They're going after each other. The wine, <laughs> the wine caves. Right. All right. We're like, what, four days removed from it now. It's sunken. And, and, I, and, I didn't even know what a wine cave was. I had to Google it. Yeah. But that says more about me than it does about anybody and, else. And Pete was a, was a message object yeah. for her core narrative, which is that there's this big money, systemic corruption Right, big lobbyists, big CEOs who have time with politicians while they're not listening to regular people. Right, One, I, I've been to some of these big money fundraisers, and I'll tell you, like people that have compelling healthcare stories, people who say I, I'm struggling with childcare, they are not asking questions at these events, and that's why Elizabeth Warren's core point that you're selling access to your time 
while I'm out there in the selfie line doing town halls, talking to people, is quite compelling about what side the government will be on. I don't want to. I don't want to. You know me. I'm, I'm a straight shooter and I'm fair. Uh, that said, I mean, she does talk to CEOs. She has to. She's an elected leader. I've reported on some of her conversations with Jamie Dimon, mm-hmm. and but they're not. Uh, they're 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 more senatorial. In an office setting, they're they're not you know fundraisers around the golf course together. Right, and if talking includes being, wrong with being, golf, at a, by the way. being at a committee hearing demanding that the CEO of Wells Fargo resign when he did several days or weeks later, like that's I guess that's a conversation. But her point is, she is not you know her method for running the campaign is not selling access to big money donors. John, let me put you on the spot here just a little bit, given your background and how you train folks in the foreign service and for diplomatic posts and whatnot. You ever get like a rich donor who has no idea what they're doing, but they got the job because they're a donor? I mean, does this stuff actually go on, or, or, or what do you make of of this rhetoric and this cultural argument about buying access to ambassadorships and whatnot? Well, it's simply a bipartisan fact of life in Washington D.C. Wow. for decades, and we right. see this in the Trump administration. We saw this in the Obama administration, in Bush forty three, and Clinton, in Bush forty one. Go back as far as you'd like. So that's a natural part of it. And you really can't have a national political campaign without the kind of cash that wealthy donors are able to provide. And the Supreme Court is already clear on this, that that donations are speech. And so there'll always be a debate about how to best regulate, if at all, uh, campaign donations. But what's happening now in the Democratic debate is what should be happening. They should be taking each other on because they're trying to win the, the support of the greatest number of voters in what will be decisive caucuses and primaries in the months ahead. So this is not a feel-good, back-scratching contest. So if Elizabeth Warren is going after Pete Buttigieg or after uh, um, Joe Biden or after uh, Bernie Sanders, so be it. I mean, this is what the Republicans did in 2016, and it's how Trump became ascendant to the shock of the American nation and the world. And, uh, and it's a healthy part of the democratic process, small d, for the, for the you know, party. Amy Klobuchar, you've been hearing about her lately. She's a mm-hmm. Democrat from Minnesota. She took on Pete Buttigieg. I mean, she, I thought quite effectively took on Pete Buttigieg in the last Democratic presidential debate. Uh, that exchange about experience in particular, it was interesting. Well, she was in uh, South Dakota earlier today, and she talked about leadership. Here's Senator Amy Klobuchar. You should rise to leadership. Um, you don't just gloat about what other people did. The farmers and workers and businesses uh, that hung in through the downturn and got us out of the downturn. So there you have her and the mayor, Pete Buttigieg, just saying earlier today in Iowa, well, talking about unity. Here's Pete Buttigieg. We have to come together, especially at this moment, or even compared to 2016, where there was a sense of a wolf at the gates. This time, the wolf is through the gates, eating our chickens. Uh, we, we cannot afford to be anything but unified. I guess, I guess in Iowa you talk about chickens eating the chicken. I don't know, I don't know what that means. But uh, I was. It's interesting to me that the Warren campaign, tar- not targeting and but that and Buttigieg's campaign that they're in this that they're in this scuffle because it it would indicate that that Warren feels that she can get some of his voters and vice versa, and they. And but they're very different on policy. You know, I mean, it's this highly educated suburban voter, typically white voter, that both of them seem to really be going after. Well, again, there are a lot of scared progressive electability <laughs> voters, and I would actually say Amy Klobuchar tapped into that. Her core critique of Buttigieg was, "Hey, you say you're from Mike Pence's Indiana, 
you're from a college town, a liberal college town, where you won 8,000 votes. If you had won in Indiana, that would be one thing. But saying that you're from Mike Pence's Indiana is like winning mayor of Austin and saying, I'm from Ted Cruz's Texas. It's not the same thing. So she's making And a, he an lost the DNC chair. Well, he also lost that. But, you know, but that what, was, that's, that's a but, big loss. And then to run for president. Right. I was, then, that's, but, that's what struck me in her critique. Yeah. And to the point that was made before, uh, in terms of how you have to raise money, I mean, honestly, Pete has raised less money than Bernie mm-hmm. and Elizabeth Warren. Like, there's a way of doing it the grassroots way. And as someone who runs an email list of nearly a million members, I can tell you that people won't donate if they feel powerless. If they feel like, oh, you're going to have big money anyway, so why is my $3, my $5 matter? They won't give. But what Bernie and Warren are proving is if you put it on the table and say, look, I'm not going to spend my time with these big guys. Now, just to be clear, they are still raising money from bigger donors if they want to go on the website and voluntarily give. They're not unilaterally disarming, but they're not spending their time selling access to these people in wine caves with and a dollar And I still think that the fight, I mean, I think it's interesting. I thought it was effective for Klobuchar to, to, to go after Buttigieg in the last debate in this back and forth. She became the first candidate, by the way, earlier today to go to all of the counties in Iowa. Uh, if she has a strong, I mean, it's still far out. If she were to overperform in Iowa, at some point, she would have to turn on Biden, less so on, on Warren. And that's why the dynamics of this are just so quickly. Do you think Warren can bounce back quickly? We don't, we don't have that much, do you think Warren can bounce back in the polls? Yes, by How? doing exactly what she's doing now. What's I mean, she doing now? What, what fueled her rise was a focus on systemic corruption, taking on big corporate actors on behalf of everyday people. And that's where the conversation is again. Mm-hmm. right? And the fact that you know one of the main people in the Trump impeachment is an ambassador who donated a million dollars just underscores her, her call for taking on systemic corruption and big money influence. All right, coming up, we're going to talk geopolitics and business. Panel stays. I'm Kevin Cerulli. Download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find us on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. I'm Kevin Cerulli. I, I wanted to leave the show with this, but I'm rooting for the Redskins this weekend because that would make it easier for my Eagles to get in the playoffs. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. You know, what's supposed to come first is the safety of people who are flying in those airplanes, the American public, not the profits of Boeing. That was Senator Elizabeth Warren, Democrat from Massachusetts, Democratic presidential candidate, talking back in March when now former Boeing CEO Dennis Mullenberg was testifying before Congress following the deadly crashes, the two deadly crashes of its top-selling 737 MAX jetliner. 
Dennis Mullenberg was ousted as the CEO. I'm reading now from the Bloomberg Terminal. Dennis Mullenberg ousted as chief executive officer of Boeing, and once unthinkable turning point for a U.S. industrial champion now engulfed in turmoil after two deadly crashes of its top-selling 737 MAX jetliner. David Calhoun. David Calhoun, that's the name, remember it. A General Electric Company veteran who has served as chairman since October is going to replace Mullenberg as CEO starting January 13th. Boeing made this announcement earlier today. It really comes following this rare public rebuke earlier this month by the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration. I mean, for the Boeing CEO to go up against FAA would have been unthinkable. Uh, so I guess, you know, what we're getting from these reports is that shareholders lost confidence in Dennis Mullenberg uh, because of that friction with the FAA. And it's now David Calhoun's turn to try to turn it around. And, you know, this is a guy who led GE uh, following 9-11 and uh, really, you know, took a, a situation back then. And uh, was able, he ran GE's aircraft engines division from 2000 to 2004 and then ascended to vice chairman before leaving the company in 2006. So he was with it through, through a, lot, uh, a large period of growth. Uh, Adam Green's here, co founder of the Progressive Campaign, of Progressive Change Campaign Committee, and John Sidalides, geopolitical strategist at Trilogy Advisors and diplomacy coordinator under contract to the United States State Department. John, I mean, Boeing is such a massive company, such an important American, iconic company. Can David Calhoun restore trust? Forget about shareholders for a second. In in Americans and in regulators, he's going to have to. And I mean, that's why they've brought him on board. What's interesting is that he's he's considered to possess exceptional aviation expertise skills. I mean, he specializes in the industry, and he's been a board member uh, of Boeing since two thousand nine. So I think they're looking for a, as seamless a transition as possible for leadership purposes. They needed to bring someone in to replace Mullenberg, but Calhoun's got an enormous task ahead of him. He has to rebuild trust and reassure regulators, employees, business partners. Lawmakers. Shareholders, yes. And one of the ideas that's uh, circulating now is maybe because Mullenberg also uh, was fired or resigned from the board. So there's an open board position now with Boeing. So not only is Calhoun the new CEO, but with the, the open board spot, maybe it would be wise for Boeing to consider bringing in uh, a, a regulator, somebody who understands the industry and can participate at that board level. Smart. Yeah, and try to reassure all of these different constituents that Boeing is going to have to to ensure that it's got a much better year in 2020 than it just endured. I mean, folks, if you're listening, I mean, just, just to be – to be really clear here, for the FAA to have friction with Boeing, which we've chronicled and there's been reports on over the last several months, is is I, I'm trying to find an analogy, but it's it's stunning here in Washington, inside of the Beltway. I mean, Boeing's presence in Washington just notably large, and and for that there there to be friction with the FAA and Boeing is stunning. Uh, so if that were to improve, you know, it would be it would be a new uh, dynamic. Meanwhile, go ahead, Adam. Yeah, well, first, I agree with all of John's points. Good. Look, uh, I found sorry. something that John and go. Adam agree on. There we go. Why not? I, um, it's the holidays. <laughs> I'm bringing everybody together. <laughs> so, you know, I guess the point I would add to that is, you know, which political party is most opposed to airplanes tragically crashing and burning? I think the answer to that is the same as which political party most is opposed to there being polluted air and water for their 
kids or which political party is, 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 is wait, 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 is most opposed to foreclosures. The answer is neither. Not, the answer okay. is neither. Oh, okay. There is bipartisan I was, agreement. I was no, literally, I was no, literally no, wait, wait, about to, I'm going to let you finish, but I thought you were going to say no. the Democrats, and I was no, like, no. I can't. No, I, I'm actually saying <laughs> this. There are some issues that are left-right in D.C., but so many issues in this case involving corporate corruption, are more inside versus outside. Mm. Why does Boeing have so much influence in the capital? Because of what Eisenhower called the military-industrial complex. There is so much corporate capture of our agencies that the FDA dares not challenge Boeing, which has jobs in so many congressional districts. But this proves the point, that we need a politician like Trump who railed against Wall Street speeches, railed against corporate trade deals, railed against the swamp in Washington. We need a Democratic nominee who can tap into that same hunger for systemic change and the undoing of corporate capture. So I think this, the fact that Elizabeth Warren was out there taking the lead on calling for this guy's resignation is pretty symbolic of that. Well, to your point earlier, Kevin, about the problems that Boeing is facing, there's also been bipartisan criticism under Mullenberg's leadership of Boeing's inability to provide quality data and transparency to the FAA during the last several months, making this a much more difficult situation for the FAA and bringing about both Democratic and Republican criticism of that leadership. Uh, don't forget also that I think one of the things that triggered this firing, for lack of a better word, I mean, we can say formally it's a resignation, but he was fired by the board, is the failure of the Boeing space capsule. Right, uh, the star Last week, yes, that's right. It was supposed to connect with the, uh, the, the space station, and there was some technical malfunction, and it went into the wrong orbit, and the, the project was aborted. And so with this on top of all of the problems that Boeing has had from a regulatory perspective, from a safety perspective, and from a leadership perspective, I think it was just too much for the board. They've taken a hit. I mean, there's no other way to – I mean, Boeing is such an – again, an, it is an incredibly important – uh, company, an American company that has a global presence, a global footprint, and and to Adam, to your point, has a, a incredible clout in all over the country in terms of various uh, part makers and mechanics and, and whatnot. But there's no doubt. I mean, just within the last 72 hours, you mentioned mm -hmm. the jetliner. Coming up, we're going to talk foreign policy. We're going to see what's on the panel's radar. Download the Bloomberg Sound on podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find us on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. I'm Kevin Cerulli, and I'm still basking in the glow of the Lincoln Financial Field. I was at the link. I had a field pass. I can't even tell you. That stadium in Philly was on fire when the Philadelphia Eagles beat the Dallas Cowboys. I'm still smiling about it. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. Adam Green's here. John Sidalides also. We're going to do what's on your radar. But first, John, just given your foreign policy background, I wanted to get your take on the uh, Saudi development, Saudi Arabia uh, sentencing uh, a Saudi courts, uh, reading from CNN, a Saudi court's announcement that five people have been sentenced to death for the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, you're, you know, what, what do you know about that? I don't know much more than what's no. been reported, but to put it into a larger context— A better context, question would be, what does it mean for U.S.-Saudi relations, Kevin? Well, uh, <laughs> no, it's a huge issue, Kevin. I'm glad you're raising it because this is one of those issues that becomes a, a major quandary for U.S. policymakers. Because on the one hand, to the degree that we're looking to uh, uphold human rights and some level of morality in our international conduct— 
so that we stand up for what's important to us as Americans. Saudi Arabia is one of the most difficult issues because of the very odious nature of its regime, right? I mean, you have a criminal justice system that often engages in sheer butchery to punish people with very little due process, as we would know it in the West. On the other hand, uh, they are the dominant country in the Arabian Peninsula, and there are three of the major strategic choke points that carry oil and natural gas from the Persian Gulf to China, to Japan, to South Korea, to Taiwan, to India, to Europe, uh, through Yemen and the Red Sea, through Egypt's Suez Canal. And if the Saudi Arabian government is ever destabilized, then you may have a global depression because of the complete cutoff of major oil supplies to Asian and European markets. So we have this very difficult uh, balance between geostrategic interests in the Arabian Peninsula, let alone working with Saudi Arabia, UAE, Jordan, Egypt, and Israel to contain Iranian regional aggression in the Middle East, but also to ensure the free and open flow of fossil fuels, petrochemicals, to major global markets. In terms of, I'm reading from the Bloomberg ter Terminal now, a Saudi court sentenced five people to death for the murder of government critic Jamal Khashoggi, but ruled the la that last year's assassination wasn't premeditated and said it didn't have enough evidence to incriminate two top officials close to Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Meanwhile, remen remember that U.S. lawmakers and CIA analysts concluded that it could not have taken place, that the killing could not have taken place without MBS's knowledge. So some more developments on that front. The Saudis not uh, incriminating two of the top officials closest to the Saudi crown prince. All right, now it's time for what's on the panel's radar. Adam, I'll start with you. What's on your radar, bud? Sure. I'll go from very global to very local. Yes. Uh, South Bend, Indiana. Okay. So it's well known, judge. It's well known that Mayor Pete is doing fairly well in Iowa, less well in South Carolina, especially with black voters. Uh, there was a media call by Black Lives Matter South Bend last week where they talked about basically what amounted to a few t ticking time bombs that will go off in 2020 on racial issues in South Bend that would directly hurt the electability of any Democratic nominee if they went a certain way, uh, one of which is uh, there was a federal civil rights case uh, brought by uh, the family of Eric Logan, who was shot right before the first presidential debate this year, um, pretty much saying that there's systemic racism in the South Bend police resulting in that. And there's also a special prosecutor who has been appointed to fact find and figure out what happened there. Uh, both of those are about to you know, go public in 2020. And, wow. th and there's a third ticking time bomb, which is the city council has sued the mayor and the police department for some secret tapes of people conspiring to have the first ever black police chief fired. And part of apparently what's on those tapes is people saying, hey, let's go to Pete's donors and ask him to fire the black police chief, which he eventually did. So that's going to come out right before the Democratic convention. I'm, I'm looking to see if the media actually cover these things, because for any scared Democratic voter who cares about electability, what could help it's Donald Trump more suppress the black vote than these things coming out it's right very, before the Democratic very convention Very, very fascinating. Adam Green, that's a really good what's on your radar. It's a good preview of the Thank politics you. and the, the playbook of the oppo that'll come out. Uh, all right, Adam, good one. Uh, John, what's on your radar? Several potential scenarios on the global stage, yes. Kevin. Uh, one, of course, in the days ahead, we're looking to see if there's going to be a quote-unquote Christmas surprise coming from Pyongyang. If yeah, it's anything, Kim Jong-un is, is really, you know, not, doesn't, I guess he doesn't have mistletoe. Go ahead. Well, if there's anything along the lines of an ICBM or related nuclear missile launch, I think it can trigger 
I wouldn't say fire and fury, as President Trump had warned a year and a half or so ago, but it could trigger secondary sanctions that could affect major Chinese businesses and Russian businesses uh, that have been involved in propping up the North Korean regime over the last several years. What is it, like 90 percent of, of outflow and, and flow? In, in North Korea comes from China? Absolutely. To China. And that could, of course, Crazy. affect the, the success of the phase two talks. I mean, once phase one is actually agreed to, that agreement has not been executed. So okay. I want to put everyone on notice. There's been a lot of talk, but until the two sides actually agree on a translated, on two translated versions that both sides can agree to, we don't have a formal agreement in place yet, but it's there in principle. But if we have secondary sanctions imposed by the Trump administration in response for a North Korean violation of the understanding between President Trump and Chairman Kim, then you could see a deleterious impact on the phase two talks throughout 2020. And it's this interesting tug of war of, you know, does Iran see leverage if talks with North Korea go wrong and whatnot? And Bill Ferries, by the way, uh, who's our who's our national security team leader here in the bureau, you know, he, he pointed out to me earlier today on Bloomberg Television that uh, Kim Jong-un is going to give this talk on January 1st that everybody analyzes, but we've got this, I guess, Christmas gift that's coming, so we'll keep careful watching. Perhaps, that. perhaps. But let's also keep in mind what's going to be happening in Iran in 2020. Right. We don't know whether or not the supreme leader, uh, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, will actually survive. He's 80 years old. He's been in very poor health for a number of years, and there's no smooth succession plan in place. And Iran has already been rocked by thousands of protests throughout the country over the last year or so. So you may have significant destabilization of the political regime in Tehran with significant impact throughout the Middle East. It's a really good one. Uh, what's on my radar? U.S.-China trade talks. President Xi Jinping saying that they're going to slice some tariffs on eight, more than 850 products. On January 1st, the China's finance ministry saying that they're going to lower some of the tariffs. So some more positive, positive uh, action coming out of Beijing on the U.S.-China trade front. Remember, President Trump was very optimistic on Friday about the status of that. So U.S.-China trade talks still trending positively on that front. All right, quickly, is your holiday shopping done, Adam, yes or no? No. Is your holiday shopping done? I don't shop. John, you, what are you getting? My wife is doing all the or Christmas Did you get shopping. your wife's gift, John? It's coming. All right, John. I mean, if she's <laughs> listening, I, you know, she going, knows. I think you're going to see her she knows. for dinner. I mean, it's okay. I, hope, I, I don't want to get her. you in trouble. I love her very much, and she knows that more John, than anything John, your first else. time on the show. you got to come back, but I hope I didn't get you in trouble <laughs> with your wife. Not at all. <laughs> Happy holidays, everybody. I'll be back on Thursday. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.